Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you can hear me, just wave at me. Yes, that means you're listening. Wonderful. Good to be together. I hope you're enjoying your extra special Coronation Bank holiday weekend. Now, um, whether you watched the Coronation yesterday or whether you did all you could to get away from it, because I know that there are both groups of people in this church, I hope you had a good uh, Saturday. And uh, for those of you who weren't watching the Coronation, you probably had a quiet time wherever you went. Um, but whether you're into uh, the royal family or not, I, if you managed to even catch five minutes of it yesterday, you'll probably agree that it was a pretty special thing. It was a pretty incredible ceremony uh, with a lot of... Uh, incredible uh, grandeur, and a lot of money as well spent. Um, quite an incredible uh, service. But what was quite striking for me was that, despite the fact that increasingly uh, this nation, uh, with increasingly turning our back on our Christian heritage, and now less than 50% of people in this country identify as Christian, and the reality is it's, it's a lot lower than that. You know, 5 or 6% of people who are going, going to church on a weekly basis... Um, despite all of that decline, as it were, the service yesterday, the coronation service, was very deeply uh, rooted and riddled with Christian imagery, Christian scripture, Christian song lyrics. Uh, you might have seen this amazing tapestry of the, the Lord's Supper in, in the kind of backdrop of it all. It's quite incredible, really, in a time where we are supposedly becoming more and more secular. Millions were tuning in to a service that was very deeply Christian in its roots and its content. And even those who weren't watching the ceremony yesterday but still celebrating were draping flags over their windows or having little cupcakes with the Union uh, Jack flag on it, which has not one but three crosses on it. And it's sometimes something we, we forget, that this is actually, again, a sign of the massive ways in which Christianity has impacted our nation, how uh, millions and millions of people who may not even call themselves Christians are deeply impacted by Christianity every single day because so much has changed in this country because of Jesus, because of what he has done and because of what he has taught. The things that we maybe take for granted in a secular nation, secular Western nation like ours, like human rights, have come about because of the teachings of the Bible and because of the spread of Christianity. Things like sexual consent have come about because of the teachings of Christianity and the spread of the gospel around the world. Things like this, uh, this belief that actually one day things are going to be better than they are now have come about because of the impact of Christianity in the world. And it wasn't always like that. There was a time before this Jesus movement started to spread where things were very different indeed where people didn't invite people over for tea parties uh, in the afternoon on a Sunday, uh, but they actually went and watched people getting killed in theatres for fun. That was kind of like a good afternoon out. Let's go and watch some slaves try and kill each other. That was, that was a fun day out. It wasn't, let's go and celebrate Ipswich Town getting promoted. It was, let's go and watch some people get killed. And the kind of patriarch of the household could have sex with anyone he wanted to in the house at any moment. That was the reality of the world before this Jesus movement started to spread. This was the world into which Peter, this book, uh, this, this apostle, this early church leader whose book we are going through in these weeks uh, at this time, this is the world into which he is writing. As you'll see on the map here, the Roman Empire uh, was spread right across the known world at that time. And this was an empire where there were many gods worshipped, 
where many of the values that we take for granted, even the notion of love as we celebrate in this uh, nation. And as tonight, as there's a big coronation party and Lionel Richie and others sing about love in all these gushy ways, that notion wasn't known and celebrated. Things have changed massively because of the Jesus movement. And so Peter, writing from Rome to a group of churches in uh, modern-day Turkey, it was known as Asia back then, he's writing to some Christians who feel like they are very different to the world around them, who feel alienated because of their beliefs, who feel like under pressure, really, to go back to the ways in which they once lived. This is the group of people that Peter is writing to. And as they are feeling under such pressure, Peter has had to remind them Guys, there is a glorious future ahead for you. That there is a, a, an incredible, eternal uh, home awaiting you, as we heard from Tommy last week and Nick the week before. There's a home awaiting you that you need to cling on to. You need to fix your eyes on. You need to uh, not let go from the horizon of your minds. There is a reality coming your way where you will be without suffering, without sickness, there will be no sin, where you will live on a physical earth in physical bodies and where you'll enjoy knowing Jesus for eternity and his good creation. And he's saying, fix your eyes on these things. There was a great author from the last century, many of you would have heard of him, called C.S. Lewis, and he said the following, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Now, I think C.S. Lewis is spot on, and I think that even though that was decades ago, I think it's still true that we as Christians, we cease to think about the next life. Or if we think about it, we think about it in the wrong way. We think about it a bit like um, kind of the cartoons depict of kind of like a bodiless soul floating on a cloud playing a harp and singing songs of praise to God. That, that isn't the biblical picture at all. Now, it's sometimes a, a thing of confusion between our, uh, our temporary state and our eternal state. Because the Bible says that when we die, when we close our eyes in this life, if we trust in Jesus, our souls will go to be with Jesus immediately. But the eternal state that we will enjoy is when our soul is reunited with a renewed body and that we live on a renewed earth with Jesus at the center. And that is something we can look forward to, something that we are to fix our eyes on, something that we're to consider our true home. We're not going to consider clouds and harps our true home, are we? No one's excited about that. But to get, to get to know Jesus and have him at the center of this renewed earth, glorious creation in renewed bodies, that is something that we can fix our eyes on, that we can consider our true eternal home. And so Peter has spent some time at the outset of his letter, as we've heard in these previous weeks, reminding the believers, you've got a glorious future ahead of you. Fix your eyes on it. You may be under pressure. You may be persecuted. You may be going through trials. You may be going through difficulties. Fix your eyes on that. Don't let go of it. You've got a glorious uh, a hope that will not perish, that will, an inheritance coming your way that will not fade away. So having reminded them of this, we're now going to come to verse 22 of 1 Peter. And this is what we're going to read. This kind of really marks a shift in the letter that he's writing. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, 
so that you have sincere love for one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're going to skip the next few verses, but we will come back to them at the end. But you are a chosen people, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's a real shift now in the letter that Peter is writing to these churches. He's reminded them of their hope. He's reminded them of the fact that they've been brought by the precious blood of Jesus. And now he's saying, this is how you are now to live. You are to live in light of this. You're to live in light of this truth. Verse 11 of chapter 2, which we'll come on to next week, is all about how to live amongst those that don't know this hope. Who, don't, who are not on this journey from, uh, from this life to the promised land ahead of us. But this is actually all about how we are to journey together as Christians as we fix our eyes on the future hope that is ours. There's actually some parallels here with the book of Exodus, which we went through as a church earlier uh, this year, where the people of God had been rescued from Egypt. They'd been freed from Egypt. Egypt was no longer their home but they were on their way to the promised land, the land that God has said would be theirs. So they were like living between two worlds, as it were. Likewise, we are living between two worlds. This is no longer our home. Ipswich, as much as we love this town, as much as we are pleased that the football team's doing well, as much as there's so much good to celebrate about this nation, it's not our home. It's not our ultimate home. We're in between two worlds. We're, lo- we're looking forward and longing for another home. And Peter's saying, as you're on this journey... This is how you are to live together. This is how we're to be. Because as it was for the the Israelites leaving Egypt, they encountered difficulties, they encountered distractions, they encountered despair at times, they grumbled, they fought with each other, and they needed to know some things. They needed to know how to live. And Peter is saying here, same for us. As we go on this journey together, we're going to encounter difficulties. We're going to encounter distractions. There's going to be despair at times. This is how you are to live. 
So we're going to look at this life that, that uh, God is calling us into. We're going to look at the fuel for this life. And then we're going to look at the outcome of this life. You clear? This is where we're going. So this life, all about loving earnestly. Loving one another, as we see, from the heart. That's what this life is that we're called to, to love one another from the heart. Peter's taking after his master in sharing this. Because his master, Jesus, taught this very thing. In John chapter 13, he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And by this, by this love that you have for each other, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's something of a display to the world that Jesus had in mind if we love one another from the heart. Now, what's he getting at? What does this love look like? Well, how did he, how did he love his disciples, you might ask? Well, just before he shared those words, he had put a towel around his waist and got onto his knees and washed the stinking, dirty feet of his disciples. I don't know if you've ever lived in a big city where it's hot and you need to wear sandals. You need to wear flip-flops or sliders. Your feet, at the end of the day, are really grim. I lived in a big city in Mexico for six months, wore flip-flops all the time. By the end of the day, I would have to wash my feet for probably a good half an hour until they remotely look like my feet again. And this is the reality of Jesus getting down onto his hands and knees and washing the feet of his disciples. It would have had dirt and poo and just would have been grim. And he's doing all 12 of them. Not just a one-off, okay, I'll quickly get this done. <laughs> one by one, washing the feet of his disciples. The king of kings that we've sung to this morning the majestic one. I mean, we do pomp and ceremony really well in this country, don't we? Like, we're, we're definitely the best at it. I don't know where you come from, but we're, de we're definitely like, we're up there, right? But his majesty is far, far greater than any majesty that we saw on display yesterday. He, the one who designed all of the planets, the one who intricately designed the human body, who intricately, intricately designed everything we see, he is so majestic. And there he is, drop into his knees to wash their feet. He's showing a self-sacrificial love. A love that doesn't put himself first, but put others first. He's foreshadowing what would happen the very next day as he would go to the cross and die in the place of his friends and all those who would believe. He would lay down his life. This is the kind of love with which he loved his disciples. This is the kind of love with which he loves us. And now we are to love each other as he has loved us. With a love that does not seek out our own will. With a love that doesn't put ourselves first, but that puts others first. This is the kind of love that we're to imitate. We've got this problem, haven't we, where you know, tonight there'll be a whole load of songs sung about love. I take that and Katy Perry and all these other pop acts, they'll be singing songs about love. But if you were to stop them for a minute and just say, can you just define love for me? What do you mean by that? Are you talking about a kind of squishy feeling that you get when you fancy someone? 
What, like, what, what's going on here? What's the definition of love here? It would be quite hard to define it. I think, uh, I think the world in which we live would be quite hard-pressed to define what love actually means. But Jesus defines love by dying on the cross for us. He defines love by putting us before him. That he might save us, that he might free us. He laid down his rights. He laid aside his glory to serve and to save. And this is the kind of love that is to mark us out, friends. This is the kind of love that's to make us different to the world around. And Peter unpacks this more in chapter 3, in verses 8 to 9, where he says this, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Be compassionate and humble. Humility is, is really not celebrated in our culture. Humility. Be, be other-centered. Don't be self-centered. Be other-centered. Consider others more important than yourself. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So he's unpacking more what love looks like. He does it again in chapter 4. He says this, Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's a temptation, isn't it, when you've got the washing up to do? When you've got some hoovering to do? And you think, I'd quite like to kick back. No, no, I offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So he's unpacking some more here as the letter unfolds as to what love looks like. It's, it's centered on others. It's about serving others. It's about seeing that we're part of a family. You need to understand, when you read the New Testament, often where it says the word you, it should be an American yarl or a northern use. Okay, we don't have, a, we don't have an equivalent in southern England of the plural you. But often when you're reading the New Testament, it's talking about you, yourselves, you, plural, that actually we consider we're not caught up in just something that's just Jesus and me, but we're caught up in something where we rub shoulders with people all of the time. Where we're part of a family. Where we're brothers and sisters together. Where we know others. Where others know us. And so this plural language, as we see here, as you, yourselves, come to him. This is, a, this is speaking into a community life here. It's speaking into something that is not just an individual deal. We need to know other-centered love on this journey. We need to see that it's not about my needs being met. That it's not about my rights being upheld. But it's about putting others first and preferring others, just as Jesus did for us. Peter knows, just like any family that goes on a long journey, that tensions get high. Any parent of children knows that to be true here. You stay out on the journey and all is peaceful, if you're lucky. And then before long, he's got more fruit pastels than me. She is leaning her head over my side of the car. This is my area. And here she is. You know that well? I'm not going to share all the deepest, darkest secrets of my family here. <laughs> but this is the reality. When we set out on a journey together, there's going to be moments where we need to demonstrate this kind of love. 
this self-sacrificial love, because we're on this journey together to the land that God has promised us, and we need this kind of love. So we need to adopt this, but we also need to throw off some things. We need to throw off some things that maybe happen to us. Even the Israelites found this to be true, right? As they cut the, Through many miracles, God rescued them from Egypt, and then they started to grumble. Then they started to argue amongst themselves. The disciples were like this. Jesus would do something miraculous, and then a minute later, they're arguing about who is the greatest. So even us, we can have an incredible experience of God's love. We can know uh, incredible truth being preached to us. And then even that same day, we can be faced with a moment where we've got a choice. Am I going to love others more than myself? Or am I going to prefer my own rights or my own wishes? And Peter is urging them to love one another deeply. And it looks a certain way. It looks like getting rid of some things. He says, rid yourself of malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. He's saying, put off some things that are no longer befitting of who you are. As we heard wonderfully from Tommy last week, we've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. If you know Jesus this morning, and I guess that's many, many people here, you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus something so precious. You are, that's, that, that leads us to live dignified lives, does it not? To understand, I've been brought at a price. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to him. And so there's some things that are no longer befitting of who I am. Some things I need to put off. Put away malice. Put away ven- this kind of vengefulness. Or desire to get revenge or bitterness. It's, it's not befitting of us any longer. When we hold on to these things, we're not going to love well. Revenge is sweet, so the saying goes. But it's not sweet for a believer. It's not sweet for a believer. We're not to be those that hold on to things. Are you someone that holds on? Are you someone that doesn't like to let go? That you want to just jab someone with that? Hey, you did that many years ago. You don't want to let go. You kind of want to get revenge. You want to see someone get taken down because of what they did to you. This is not befitting of those that have been brought by the precious blood of Jesus. We've got to trust Jesus that he, he cares about justice much more than you do. You might think, I want justice. He cares about it much more than you. And he says, trust me with it because vengeance is mine, he says. It's my job. Romans 12, you can read it. It's my job. You don't need to get revenge. It's my job. I will have justice. You can trust him with that. Put away deceit. Listen, if we're those that understand that we've been brought by the precious blood of Jesus, if we're those that understand who we are now in him, if, we're the, if we understand that it's, we're secure in him, then we don't have to kind of make others think better of us by lying to them. We don't have to put on a front. We don't have to hide things away thinking if, if they find out who I really am then I'm going to be rejected. No, because we've been wonderfully adopted into the family of God. And that's the secure, we have a secure knowledge of his love. So we can bring things into the light. We can share when we've failed and when we need help. We can speak the truth in love to each other because we're secure in who we are in Jesus. 
don't have to dance around the truth in a very British way. We can share the truth in a pl- from a place of love. We can put away deceit. We can bless others by being really loving and explaining to them, hey, I really feel like God has got better for you. You need to put this away. You can share the truth in love. You don't have to hold things back when you love someone. Rid yourselves of hypocrisy. Wow, Jesus, Jesus went after hypocrisy. He, he, he hated hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, he, he goes off on, on one about hypocrisy. He sees these Pharisees who just loved to have the praise of other people. They loved to stand on the street corners where they could be seen. They loved to pray very long prayers so they could be heard. They loved people patting them on the back and saying, you the man. They loved it. And Jesus went after hypocrisy big time. He said, hypocrisy is where your speech and actions are opposed to each other. Where your speech doesn't line up with your actions. He says, hypocrisy is when you want to be seen by others. You value the praise of others more than the praise of men. He says that hypocrisy is where you neglect the inside, but spend a lot of time decorating the outside. (laughs) How true is that in an age of social media? Where we can decorate the outside in a new way. And we can make it look very impressive on the outside and neglect the inside. You see, for the Pharisees, it was fancy clothing, fancy hats, fancy robes. What is it for us that we might pay more attention to the outside of, but actually not the inside? We love people well when we are attending to the inside more than we are the outside. He said that of the, of the Pharisees, they were severe with others, but lenient with themselves. Is that true for us? That we might be lenient with ourselves, expecting we should be given a free pass on some things, but severe with others for the same thing or for lesser things. Put away hypocrisy. Put away envy. Envy's the worst of all of these. There's no pleasure in envy whatsoever. You might, with a bit of vengeance, get a spike of pleasure. Let's be honest, you might. You might with a bit of deceit, you know, puff yourself up by saying that you're better than you are. But envy, there's nothing good about envy. There's no, there's no upsides to envy. It just causes misery. And it breaks relationships down. They say that comparison is the, the thief of joy. It's the thief of friendship. It's the thief of true love for others. When we're just comparing ourselves to others, wishing we had what they had, resenting them for what they have. We need to be those that trust God. Envy doesn't trust God. Envy thinks that God's got it wrong. Envy thinks that God doesn't know what he's doing. Envy doesn't trust God's future provision in this life and into eternity. Put away envy. It robs us of the ability to love one another well. Finally, put away slander of every kind. And this is a big one. This is a big one. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from the 1800s, he says this, and I love this. A Christian should have nothing to do with slander, but should say in a company, stop, I cannot sit by and hear you say that of an absent person. If he were here, you might say what you like, but as he's not, please hold your tongue. I am here as a defender of those who are backbitten. And he goes on to say this, every absent man should have an advocate in a Christian. This is especially true when the rumor injures a brother. 
He says, it's an ill bird that fouls its own nest. And he is an ill believer who tells tales about his fellow Christians. Help us, Lord. Help us in this, Lord. That we might, that we might speak well of others. We might speak the truth to them to their faith. So this is the kind of love that Peter's going on about. It seems hard, doesn't it? We're faced with temptation every day to do a bunch of those things. Peter's saying, love like Jesus has loved. Remember what he's done for you. And in the power of that, go and love others. We need fuel for this. We need fuel for this life, don't we? Otherwise, we'll get weary. Otherwise, we find we just keep failing. We need fuel for this. And in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 1, which you can go and read in your own time, he's unpacked some of that fuel. He's talked about what Jesus has done for us. He's talked about how his blood has won us and brought us into the family of God. Listen, we need to be those that keep coming back again and again to the costly love of God demonstrated to us in Jesus. We need to keep coming back to that. In Luke chapter 7... There's this amazing story of this woman who is notorious in the area, probably as a sex worker. We don't know for sure, but probably is. She's described as a woman of the city. That doesn't mean someone from Norwich. That means someone who's making their trade in different ways. And she comes and she pours out her praise upon Jesus. And she, she delights in him. And Jesus says words to the extent of, whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. If you don't think you've been forgiven much, you actually don't end up being very loving. But those who understand, I have been forgiven so much. Those who come back again and again to the grace of God on their life. It's those who will be most loving in this life. Who will be most other-centered who will be most generous with their love. When you understand what he's done for you, it's those people that will be most generous with their love in this life. We must come again and again to this. We must come again and again to the word of God, friends. When we see here, like, like newborns, we are to crave the spiritual milk. Crave pure spiritual milk. It might say in your version of the Bible, the pure spiritual milk of the word. Because if you go back into the original Greek, that's the kind of angle it's taking here. It's saying, go back to what is really going to feed you. Be hungry for the word of God. Let it fill you rich. Like, let it fill you right within. Let it dwell in you richly, Paul would say in Colossians. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Let it bubble up within you. Keep coming back to the truth of God's word. Feed upon it. Feast upon it. Newborn babies don't wait for meal times. They don't think, oh, I'm just going to wait till 7.30, then I'll politely wake my mum up. <laughs> no, they just, they just say, I'm hungry, and they make the noise, and they go and feed. That's how it works. Friends, when we know ourselves to be starving of good stuff, we need to come back to the word of God. We need to be those that say, I need a feast. I need to feast on the truth. I need to come back to his goodness. I really need this. Because what happens if a newborn baby doesn't feed, then eventually they die. We need to be those that say, I want to, I, I crave, I, I crave after the truth that God, what all that God has done for me. I crave after the truth of who he is. 
in a, in a dry and weary land, in a land which does not have anything to offer. All it has to offer is just get more stuff. You get more stuff, you'll be fulfilled for another 20 minutes. Have another relationship. That one's not satisfying you anymore, go after another one. Just more and more and more stuff. Friends, we need to go after that, which really, really nourishes us. I want to tell you something about meals. Like, I've preached probably about 300 sermons in this church in the last nine years. You probably can't remember any of them. <laughs> I'm not offended by that. That's all right. I can live with that. You can probably remember a few quirky illustrations, but you probably can't remember the point of them. <laughs> but each and every meal, I trust, as we've opened up God's word, has nourished you. I can't tell you what I had to eat two weeks ago on a Thursday. I, can, I can't, don't know. But it's nourished me. It's kept me going. We need to keep coming back to the word of God. You're not going to remember every meal. Some meals you might remember. You might think, yes, I, I remember when God spoke to me really clearly. This isn't just about private Bible study, friends. This is about us coming together to him. Verse 4 of chapter 2. That's what it speaks into. As you yourselves come to him. This is plural. It's yous. It's y'all. As you come together to him. This is, this, is, this is what it's got in mind here. It's not just a single person with a Bible open. Although that's a wonderful thing. It's coming together to him. To the living stone. To Jesus. To the one that we base our lives on. This is the fuel for this life. This is what we need. To be in his word and to come to him. To come to him together. To rejoice in him together. This is the fuel we need for this life. What is the outcome of this life? What's the outcome of loving one another from the heart? Just as Jesus has loved us. What's the outcome of putting off envy and malice and deceit and hypocrisy. What's the outcome of this all? Friends, it's that we would proclaim Jesus and his excellencies to the world. Jesus said, didn't he? That as you love one another, that's how the world will know that you are my disciples. There'll be something of, a, of, a, of an advert to the world of who Jesus is as we love one another well. There was a, a, a a church leader from the kind of the generation after the apostles called Tertullian. And he witnessed thousands and thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus. Do you know what he put it down to? He put it down to the way in which the Christians love one another. He said, people say to me, see how the Christians love one another. This is how the Roman Empire ended up being transformed. This is how our nation ended up coming to be as it is today, deeply rooted in Christian heritage. Because... The world saw a love that they had not seen. An other-centered love. A love in the shape of Jesus. Where we'd love one another deeply. Not, through, not with pretense, not in a shallow way. That we'd love one another deeply. This is what the outcome of this is. That we might proclaim, Peter says in chapter 2, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the wonderful light. That we might be, as he goes on to say, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. This is again a link back to Exodus in chapter 19, where God is about to give the people the Ten Commandments, and he says, if you keep my covenant, you will be to me 
a holy nation. You will be my special treasured possession of all the nations of the earth. You will shine. This was always his desire that his, he would have a people that would look very different. And friends, as we love one another like this, we will declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. We will be to the world around a very different race. Even though we are many ethnicities here, we are now one race together. Jesus being the one that unites us all. You look around you, <laughs> there's some people who you would, you would have nothing to do with if it wasn't for Jesus. You could turn to the person next to you and say, if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd have nothing to do with you. <laughs> but now, friends... You enjoy doing that. But now, friends, we have been brought together. We are a people. We're a people of God. This is who we are. This is more fundamental than any other identity that you have. I belong to the people of God. This is, this is, my, this is, this is my people. This is my nation now. I love, I'm half Welsh. I love to support Wales in rugby. Go crazy for them. Weirdly, people don't get this, but I support England at football, okay? But don't shoot me. But that is not my nation. My nation is the nation of Jesus that I'm going to live in one day forever. That's my ultimate, my ultimate culture, my ultimate race, my ultimate people. Let us be a people of love that look very different. Just before we, we, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment, there's some verses we skipped over which talk of Jesus being a living stone, which talk of him being a cornerstone on which we build our lives. But they also talk about Jesus being a rock of stumbling, something that you could stumble over and fall. Because this message, the message of Christianity is it's not very palatable. In order to receive the gift, we firstly have to understand I really need this gift. In order to receive the gift of forgiveness, in order to receive the adoption to the family of God, we need to understand, I need this. I need this more than anything else. And for many, that is very, very hard. It's a very hard thing to swallow. Jesus on the cross is it's a rock of offense because we understand that he did that for me. If we don't understand that, we can't accept that, then we will stumble and fall over him. But what those verses are saying is that we've got to build our lives on him. We've got to build our lives on him. Him as the cornerstone. Him as the one at the center. And I want to ask you today, maybe you're here at the invite of a friend, maybe you're just here out of curiosity. Are you building your life on Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Or do you find it, this message, to be something you stumble over? I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. I can't accept that I need forgiveness. I've shared before with you, a dear friend that I still talk with from time to time, he came on an Alpha course. He loved it for the first three or four weeks. And then he said, I can't deal with the fact that someone else needs to forgive me. I should have to deal with this myself. 
So in order to, in order to build your life on Jesus, you first need to understand that you need him. You need his forgiveness. And there's a moment I want to just give you now, just to say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. Just in the quietness of this room, you can just do that. Don't need anyone to tell you what to say. Just put it in your own words to him. There's going to be some here this morning. You're going to be, as it were, coming out of darkness and into his glorious light. Just tell him, I need you, Jesus. And I want to build my life on you. I want you to be the cornerstone on which I build my life. Should we stand together, friends? We're going to sing in response to these things. We're going to worship. There's two things I want to... um, I want to particularly pray for. I want to pray for anyone here. You just know that was you. I'm not, I'm not trusting in Jesus. I haven't, I haven't done this. I want to pray that even now you will, um, that you will know him to be very real with you as you call out to him. But I really feel I want to pray for friendships in this church as well. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, I, I get all this stuff about love. I don't really know anyone here. There's a lot of people here. This church has grown quite fast. I want to pray for you that you will know good, solid friendships here. And that you'll have many opportunities to pour out this kind of love to others. With those that you know well, those that you don't. Should we pray? Maybe lift our hands together to him. Father God, we're looking to you now and we're asking for your help. Help us to love one another deeply and from the heart. Help us to so draw upon the fuel of all that you've done for us. Help us to not lose the wonder of your incredible mercy towards each one of us. Help us, Lord, to put away envy. Help us to put away envy now even, Lord. We've looked at others and compared ourselves. Help us to put away malice and vengefulness where we've been wronged or we perceive we've been wronged and we've wanted revenge, help us to put it away now in light of who we are now in you, in light of what you've done for us. We just put it off, Lord. We put off hypocrisy. We put off deceit. We say, Lord, we want to love each other. We want to love our brothers and sisters just as you've loved us. We so want that, Lord. Please help us. Please help us, Heavenly Father. And I want to just pray for my friends here, Lord, who don't yet know you. I want to ask you, Father, that even as we sing now, that you would come and meet with those that are calling out to you. You come and uh, just touch lives. You would come and uh, just come and make yourself uh, so tangible to them. And I want to finally pray, Lord, would you give many, many, many people in this place, good friendships. Just pray for that, Lord. We just, we just see what you're doing here. It's special, but we, we really long for there to be deep community. Lord, and we pray that everyone will know some people here. Lord, that you would develop friendships, Lord. That you would develop relationships. That there would be a growing depth of relationship across this church family. Where we can love one another well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.